We are so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread His truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the Word to resurrect among us so that Heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Well, welcome listeners. Welcome back to those who have been joining us and to those who are your first time. Welcome. <clears throat> Thank you for joining us or joining me, I guess, and all those who, um, you know, I don't get a ton of downloads on these. It's not like there's thousands of people who subscribe to this and, and listen along with this. Sometimes it's only one or two who download them. Sometimes there's 40 or 50 who download these things from all over the world. And so wherever you're at and whatever you're doing at this moment, thank you for downloading this and listening along with this as we're going to keep going through this book of Luke. As we're in chapter 18 right now, we're going to go through it, and, and I'm, I'm looking to do probably two or three podcasts um, successively this morning as I'm down here at our building and um, just having a, a good chunk of time today to be able to just invest in this. And as I've kind of read through 18 and 19 and even going into 20 and 21, um, man, there's this common theme that Jesus seems to be pressing really ever since chapter 12. And you could even go back to chapter 9. But there's this common theme that he's really pressing. And I think that it's something that he, um, even in the New Testament through the writings of the apostles, that he's constantly pressing. And I'm going to explain it to you in just a little bit, but essentially it's humility. It's the concept of humility and not only what it costs you, but what it affords you. And here's what I mean by that. In order for you to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, it requires surrender and sacrifice. There's a cost involved to it of what Philippians 2, 4 through 5 talks about where he says, Have this mind among yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus, that you count others more significant than yourself. And so the whole structure of the new covenant that we are in is based off of humility. And why is it based off humility? Is because Christ did the very thing. Go read what he says leading past um, Philippians 2, 4 through 5, when he says that though he was in the form of God, equality with God was not something to be grasped. So mankind could not grasp this concept of Christ being equal to God. And so what did he do? He made himself nothing, or as the King James puts it, he made himself of no reputation. Right? That reputation of what was is no longer. He made himself of no reputation and he humbled himself, becoming a servant even to the point of death. And so our example in this new covenant is humility. And when we then follow that example of humility in truth, then there's what humility affords to us. It's the blessings of heaven. It's more of Christ. It's the joy that, that is the, our strength and the peace that passes understanding. All these spiritual riches of heaven, of a treasure chest that God has just awaiting for those who would humble themselves so that they could be afforded grace. This is the basis of the new covenant and it's the basis of everything that he seems to be trying to um, 
imply to us in these two chapters that I'm going to try to do today, maybe even three. So we'll see how long it goes. So we're going to get right into this. And that will make more sense if you stick with me specifically into verse 14. Um, that will make more sense as to why I bring that up. But that's what's been sticking out to me is this concept of humility. Because Christ humbled himself even to the point of death. He became our example as Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 talk about. That we need to run this race also in that same example. And it's not something that's called for a select few. Don't think that you've given your life to Christ, but you don't get to walk in humility or you're not commissioned to walk in the level of humility like Christ. Because 1 John 2, 6 says, anyone who says that they abide in him ought to walk in the same manner in which he walked. It is the calling for every single person who claims the name of Jesus that you must seek and strive to walk in the same manner which he did. And that's primarily humility. Counting others more significant than himself. So let's go on. Starting in verse 1, he says, And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Man, how many of us have been there? How, how many of us have been in that position, in that place where we are praying, and maybe we've been praying for a while, but we're beginning to lose heart. We're beginning to lose courage. We're beginning to lose hope. We find discouragement and, and, and these things begin to kind of nestle into our heart and into our mind more than hope and courage. And we begin to lose heart. Well, here's what he goes on to say. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I'll give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Now this, this, this parable can sometimes give us difficulty because we get lost in the details and we miss the general premise of what Jesus is trying to state here. He's not comparing God to an unrighteous judge. God is a righteous judge. We know this. He's not comparing God and saying that he, you know, he has no fear for himself or respect for man or any of those things. Understand what he's trying to state. He's trying to state in an earthly sense, if an earthly judge who is unrighteous, who has no fear of God, if he would do this for somebody who is persistently coming to him, crying to him day and night, how much more will a righteous judge who actually loves you and cares for you, how much more would he do? That's the premise that Jesus is stating. So what happens if we give up? What happens if we stop praying? What happens if we're no longer persistent in that? Well, then I think that we don't afford ourselves the rewards of endurance or steadfastness. You see in James 1, 2-4, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So he says in that little microcosm of that passage, he says, look, when you are um, pressing into Christ, when you are meeting trials for the sake of Christ, but things in your life are not going as they ought to, or let me rephrase that, as you would have them go for an easy path, all because of you pressing into Christ, he says, count it joy. Because what you're going through is going to produce steadfastness in you. 
But then he says something very careful that we need to pay attention to right after that. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He says you have a job within this. When those trials meet you and you continue to press into Christ, there's this work of heaven that begins to to well up inside of you. It begins to grow in you. You begin to mature in Christ when you let it happen. If you choose to stop, if you choose to refrain from those trials that are coming to your life on behalf of you pressing into Christ, well then steadfastness cannot have its full effect in you. And in the same way in our prayers, and this is a big thing for me because I get discouraged just as much as the next guy. If I'm praying to God and I'm not seeing things happen, or if I'm pressing into Christ and things are coming against me, things are happening in which it's like, man, this is really making life difficult. It seems to have been, since I started following Jesus, that seems to have been my MO for the last 15 years. And there's times where I've gotten discouraged and there's times where I have retreated and gone back and I did not have the full effect of what God wanted to produce in me happen. But in our praying, guys, this is his principle that he's trying to establish with us in our prayers. And when we pray to the Father, when things start coming against us as a result of us pressing into him, We must continue to endure because of the faithful promise that we have from God that He will hear us and He will answer our prayer prayer in His timing and in His way. We cannot give up. It's the persistence that brings about the hand of God in response. It's a persistent faith. And so if you find yourself in that situation, don't lose heart. What does he say? Is it in John um, 14? I know in Luke 11, he has a a very similar um, passage where he talks about prayer. And he talks about the persistence or the diligence or the, the one who is just diligently praying to him. And he will rise and give them whatever it is that they need or what they're requesting in that moment to the glory of God. In John 14, 1, he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. And so this concept, he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me and know that where I am, I am bringing you to myself. As Ephesians 2 says, that we are seated with him in the heavenly places at the right hand of God. We are in Christ and Christ is in us and he has prepared this place for us so that we have this throne of grace as Hebrews 4 talks on and tail end of it to go to that when we have trials and time of need and we are in desperate need of help, God says, you have a throne of grace. But how do we receive that grace? This goes into what my exhortation in the very beginning. How do we get that grace? Because it's not simply just freely offered to us without any merit of ourselves. I'm sorry if somebody has lied to you and given you an improper definition of what grace is. 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6 says that God rejects the proud but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you. And I'm paraphrasing what essentially 1 Peter 5, 5 through basically 9 says. So that he may exalt you. See, humility is the building block for receiving from God what he has promised to us. 
If you don't walk in humility, you will not receive his grace, but he will actually put his hand up to your face and say, no. If you don't believe me, go read. And we're going to talk about this concept in just a little bit, but the reality is humility is the access that we get to the treasures of heaven. It was freely offered to us in Christ despite anything that we did prior to coming to salvation. But for it to be um, possessed, like for you to possess that work of grace, it comes through humility. And in that sense, it is merited. It requires two things from you, faith and humility. Those are the only two things that, that are the requirements of heaven from you that you are responsible for of demonstrating to God in order to possess the work of grace in your life so that it can have full effect in what it was designed to do. Grace, in its most basic and general definition, is not unmerited favor. In fact, you will not find that word unmerited anywhere in Scripture, and you won't find it anywhere in Strong's Concordance or in Thayer's. Favor? Yes. And is there an aspect of grace that can be construed as unmerited? Absolutely. I'll never argue that. I did not deserve Jesus to be offered. That was God's plan. However, for the work of grace to be manifest in my life and for me to, to um, reckon that grace to my account, it's going to require faith and humility. And that is what grace really is. And it's not just simply unmerited favor, as many people like to say. It is the work of heaven. It's the enabling power of heaven to achieve in us what was formerly impossible. To me, that's the best definition of grace. As I've studied throughout the word, that's the best definition of grace. And its origin, or what's going to reckon that power of heaven into your life to overcome sin, to continue to pray and not lose heart, is humility. And so he goes on, and I would encourage you to read the rest of John 14 because a lot of people think that it's something that he's going to do in the future. I think that it's something that he did at the cross. I think he prepared a place for us, and I think we are seated with him in heavenly places. He did not leave the disciples as orphans. He came for them. I think oftentimes we forget that there was this 10-day, or I'm sorry, this three-day stretch where they thought, what has happened? This rabbi who we followed and we claimed him as the Christ, the son of the living God, and we believed in his messiahship, we believed that he was the Christ, he's dead. And that's going to come into play even a little bit whenever we look in verse 34. And they didn't understand what Jesus was talking about, that he was going to die and, ri and rise again three days later. They didn't get it. They didn't understand. Oh, sorry about that. I forgot to turn my volume down. Um, they didn't get it. They didn't understand it. So here he is, dead. And they're thinking during these three days, what is going on? And Jesus is giving them a very clear instruction. Look, you're going to look like you're an orphan. You're going to look, it's going to look like I abandoned you. But I will not abandon you forever. I will come for you. Give me some time. There's things i got to work out. But I will come and I will appear to you. I will not leave you as orphans, so do not lose heart even in those three days when you think that all is just falling apart. He will come. And I wasn't going to share this one until later, but in 1 Peter 1.13, it's one of my favorite verses 
to kind of cling to in those moments when I'm getting discouraged in prayer or when life is getting really difficult and I'm having a hard time reconciling God's faithfulness towards me um, because the trials seem to be bombarding me and just overwhelming me. There's what I go to. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, or as the King James says, girding up your loins. To prepare your mind for action means that you've got to get ready for battle. You know, I look at um, in, in warfare throughout all of the ages when people were gearing up for battle, they had to get themselves psyched and ready to go because their their life was on the line. And so they had to go through regimens and it was probably specific to each person. Maybe it was, it was different for each one. But they had to prepare their minds for the battle that was coming. Before they even engaged in it, they had to prepare their minds of getting psyched up for that battle. So he says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Christ will be revealed. He will come through. He's faithful to come through in your life. So whatever circumstance you're facing, whatever trial you're facing, prepare your mind for action. Prepare your mind for the battle that's ahead because it will be a battle. You have an enemy who's going to come against you. He is going to prowl around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Withstand him firm in your faith. And after you have stood the test, after you have suffered for a little while, as 1 Peter 5 goes on to say, the God of all grace, he himself will be the one who appears to you and he will restore you, confirm you, and strengthen you. He will exalt you. But notice it's not until after you've suffered a while. And if we let that have his perfect work in us, then it matures us to the point of perfection, of being like Christ. And that's a whole other topic in and of itself. So going back into this one, the concept of this parable, the persistent widow who's, who's praying, uh, or I'm sorry, who's coming and pleading for justice, God will bring that against your adversary. And notice, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, we wrestle against our adversary, the devil. That's who it is. And so this concept that he's bringing here is not like we need to demand justice. Let me just tell you, as I talked with my kids today, justice was flipped on its head at the cross. There's a lot of people who are out there trying to think that being a Christian is synonymous with upholding justice. And let me just tell you, that's not. Because was it justice for a sinless man to die on my behalf? If I, I deserved something at that cross and it was not mercy... It was not salvation. It was not the, the, the offering of grace. It was condemnation, death, and hell. That's what I deserved as a sinner. But while I was a sinner, Christ died for me. And that became our example of how we as Christians are to live. So upholding a concept of justice is incomputable with being a Christian who did not receive what we deserved. But that's, again, another topic. The point that he's making here is, if an unrighteous judge who neither fears God nor cares about man will rise and give her what she's needing, this persistent widow, how much more will the Heavenly Father who does care about us give us an answer? And that's what First Peter 1.13 I think is all about. So going on he says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. I brought this one up in connection with Luke chapter 15 verse 11 in which Jesus tells the parable of the prodigal son which is what it was labeled by man. However, I think that the general premise though there are some extractions we can learn from from that younger son the general premise as to why Jesus told that was for the older son. 
to show that this older son never got the sacrifice, never got to go in with the father and celebrate. Why? Because he was proud and he trusted in himself that he was justified before him because of his actions according to the law. Go back and listen to Luke 15. That will make more sense. However, the same concept is there. That they trusted in themselves that they were righteous. So he said, I'm seeing these people out here who trust in their works, their actions, that they are righteous. Specifically according to the law. But we're going to go into that briefly. So let me just read this. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now understand, typically tax collectors were Jews. They were uh, Jews that were looked at as they betrayed their brotherhood. They worked for, the, um, for Rome. They worked to collecting taxes and oftentimes they would take a little bit more for themselves. And a lot of their fellow Jews looked at them as they betrayed them. And they were oftentimes hated. Um, and that might be a soft word for it. They were not liked. They were hated. They were abhorred because they were looked at as traitors. And so you have a Pharisee and a tax collector. And he's telling this specifically to the Pharisees who are looking at this and hearing him say this. And less towards the tax collector how there is a premise that we can understand there. He says this, The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Do you notice there's a, a common thread throughout that? As it counted up, you have one, two, three, four, five times that he referenced himself of how good he was in comparison to this tax collector. You see, this is what oftentimes, not every time, but this is oftentimes what the letter of the law produces. Is that when somebody is looking at the law of Torah, the law of Moses, and they're doing these things that are there, they can begin to look inwardly to themselves to think that they're righteous in and of themselves. But that's not the Christian. You see, the Christian doesn't find their sense of value and identity and even a right standing before God based simply off of what they do. They look at what Christ has done and they look at Christ of how worthy he is and how undeserving we are. He goes on and he says, But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Essentially, he got his prayers answered. God heard him. And he might have heard the Pharisee, but he will not acknowledge pride. When somebody is, is proud, when somebody is haughty, when somebody begins to identify and value themselves, God says, I'm not going to acknowledge that. I actually reject that. But the tax collector, yeah, he might not have had everything figured out and right. However, he humbled himself under my mighty hand. He realized that he was a sinner, that, that he was undeserving, and he found forgiveness. He found, um, well, he found grace in that moment because he was willing to humble himself under my mighty hand. He found grace. He goes on, he says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That goes right into First Peter 5 and the tail end of it. 
And I want you to notice, it's not the one whom God humbles that gets exalted. It's the one who humbles himself before God. That means that you and I have a choice in this. Hebrews 12, 14 says something that's a very key verse to understanding a lot of what grace and humility and how it works in our life. It says, strive for peace and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one among you fails to obtain the grace of God. Now that, that's a fascinating verse to me. And here's why. Because if you're a Calvinist, that's incompatible with your doctrine. Because if you're a Calvinist, you believe that, or at least a hyper-Calvinist, you would believe that there is no free will. That man cannot even choose God because we are dead, so therefore God has to choose himself for us on our behalf. And then we come alive in him, but God does all the work. Man has no free will to do one or the other, to either violate God or to not violate him. It is all predisposed or predestined by God to do it. Well, then let me ask you that. If grace given to an individual is completely unmerited and it is completely at God's disposal, man can do nothing one way or the other to hinder or to, to produce grace in another, then how is it that I could ever fail to either obtain it myself or cause somebody else to not obtain it? Do you understand what I'm asking there? He says, see to it that no one among you fails to obtain the grace of God. If it has no bearing on man whatsoever, then how could I have anything to do with somebody failing to obtain it? And yet it's written right there in Hebrews 12. You see, the reality is, how do I promote grace in somebody's life? I seek to teach them humility. I seek to teach them to count others more significant than themselves. And grace will be afforded to them if they do. If somebody fails to obtain the grace of God, it's because they've chosen to walk in pride. Just like this Pharisee. Comparing himself to other people. Thinking that he was righteous in and of himself. The reality is, none of us are righteous in and of ourselves. We have access to the righteousness of God through the person of Jesus Christ. And it is Him alone. And as Paul says in Galatians 5.5, 5, we wait eagerly for the hope of righteousness to one day where it's not going to be just an access. It's going to be bestowed to us in full for all of eternity. And this is why Jesus says, uh, oh man, this is a whole other topic that I don't think I have time to go into fully. But just understand, you have access to righteousness. You have access to it through faith in Jesus Christ. And there's this garment of righteousness that you can clothe yourself in to come before this throne of grace. But just because you prayed a prayer when you were nine doesn't mean that you are still clothed in that righteousness. Jesus says, this is why he talks about constantly, keep your garments on. He is not talking about physical garments, guys. He is talking about the spiritual garments that we have access to to clothe ourselves in. And even Jesus says in Revelation chapter 16, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. The concept is, is you have garments. It's the garments of Christ that you have to keep on in order to come before the throne of God. And this is a, a, a topic... That really requires more in-depth. And I'm just going to encourage you to go search it out. Because 
I would ask you this question. If we have, like when you prayed that prayer of nine and you got a garment of righteousness and you were clothed in that forever no matter what you did or didn't do, then why, is say, why does Paul say that he waits eagerly for the hope of righteousness? I would, I would reckon to say that Paul is a Christian. And he has access to righteousness. But if he was clothed in it, there's nothing he could do one way or the other to, to hinder that righteousness. Why does he say he waits eagerly for the hope of righteousness? That one day he's going to put on a full righteousness for all of eternity and it can never be taken away. Isn't it interesting that he says, even in 2 Timothy 4, 7-8, through 8, that he says that exact thing. He was poured out as a drink offering. He says, I kept the faith. I fought the fight. I finished the race. Henceforth, there's laid up for me. Catch this. See what he's going to say. I'm going to turn to it just to make sure that I don't misquote it. But he says here in 2 Timothy 4, where is it at? Where is it at? He says, I've fought the fight, I've uh, fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. He said, because I kept all these things and I did all these things through the grace that God afforded to me. Please don't miss that part. It was not Paul in his own strength. It was not Paul in his flesh. Because he says in Romans, uh, what is it, Romans seven eighteen, I think. He says, in me, as in my flesh, there's nothing good that dwells. I cannot manifest the work of God through Christ in my flesh. I can't do it. It is impossible. I cannot walk the life of Christ in my own strength and in my own flesh. I must have the grace of God to do it. He says, because I kept all these things through the grace that God gave to me as I displayed faith and humility to press through the circumstances, to reckon that work of grace in my life so that I could live the life of Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Because I did that, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Well, if he already possessed it, then why did he not get it until the end? You see, the point is... When we come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, as we surrender our life to Him as Lord, there is a garment of righteousness that we have access to. Romans 6 talks about this exact same thing, guys. I just talked about this. That's why it's fresh on my mind with my children this morning. But in Romans 6, he says it this, like this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us, that is totally not the verse. It goes on actually, because I was looking at it in a different Bible this morning. Um, there, verse 15. He says, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Did you catch that? Even going on, he says, For just as at once you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. He says, if you want to find the righteousness of Christ, you have access to it, but it's going to cost you. You have to do something to get it. And that is present yourself as an obedient slave in faith and humility unto the principles of which Christ lived. It's the pathway. Become obedient, it leads to righteousness. Righteousness leads to your sanctification. Sanctification leads to eternal life. It's the order. 
It's the process of it all. And I might have just confused you. And I apologize if it's something that's confusing because this is not a topic I was necessarily going to get into. But I do feel that it's relevant because it goes hand in hand with the concept of humility that God will always exalt the humble who humble themselves in truth, in the truth of Jesus Christ. But if you seek to exalt yourself, then you will be broken or humbled. And so the concept, I think, we need to understand it. That it does matter what you do. It does matter what you don't do. When you prayed and you came into Christ, you did not just receive this unconditional garment of righteousness that it doesn't matter what you do or don't do. You will always just be seen as the righteousness of Christ. If that was the case, then how could you ever give an account for what you do in the body, whether good or evil, as Paul clearly states in 2 Corinthians 5.10? How could you be judged for anything? At all. God only sees the righteous blood of Christ. That's it. And yet let me just tell you. That is a fallacy of man. That has been promoted from the pulpit for too long. It is not truth. You have access to it. It does not mean. That you are it. Okay. So he goes on. Um, I would encourage you to study that topic out more. Um, Go through the word. And read it with the refreshed lens of the spirit. So that he might give you understanding. To the complexity of that. Of how it looks and how it works. Okay. He says now they were bringing even infants to him. That he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it. They rebuked him. But Jesus called them to him saying. Let children come to me. And do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God. Like a child shall not enter it. Now that comes into play. As we get into verse 24. Of what Jesus goes on and talks about this rich young ruler. But the concept is, is that he says, you have to humble yourself like a little child. Is what Matthew 18 goes on to talk about and includes that wording in it. You have to humble yourself. In fact, let me go back and read it just so you don't think that I am. Do you see how humility is kind of playing a role as a thread through all of this? And it manifests itself in so many ways. From how we live our life, whether it's our prayer life, whether it's how we're obedient to the Lord to receive grace, or even if it's something about how we spend the the wealth that we might have in this life. That's going to come into play in a little bit. We're going to see humility, it manifests itself in every area of our life when we're truly walking in humility. He says, um, he says like this in Matthew 18, I'm going to start in 3. Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He says, look, the reality is humility. It all hinges on humility. You must humble yourself like a child. And I've got a pretty good sample size, I would would say. Having ten children, I I have a pretty good sample size of what children are like. Okay, And here's what I would say as we'll get into it um, in the, the... preceding chapter or the preceding uh, parable not parable story Um, children are very generous with their money like my kids will pretty much give anything they have their squabbles every so often of like hey that's mine you know or something like that but when it comes to money my kids will give anything like sometimes I have to talk to them about um Hey, you know, that's a great thing that you want to give everything away to this random person. Um, But let me just encourage you. God understands you have necessities too. And I want you to give and I give abundantly and generously. But understand that God's not asking for you to just completely be um, without everything in this life. 
And I have to have these conversations with them in, in childlike terms because my children, they all just want to give because they don't have a value attached to money. It's not until we get older that we typically have a value attached to money. It becomes it becomes a greater thing to us because it's like, whoa, how are we going to eat? How are we going to sleep? Kids, they already know that their parents take care of them. They're not worried about food. They're not worried about drink. And man, we can learn a lot from them as adults to know that our Father will take care of us. And we don't have to be concerned about those things. Man, we can live life trusting that He will provide because He has promised it. If you seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. He's promised to provide food, drink, and clothing to us. He'll take care of us. Will we, will we be content with what he provides? Well, that's up to you. In America, that's very difficult because a lot of people have grown um, used to a lifestyle that is not a simplistic, need-based lifestyle. It is all about wants. I want the bigger house. I want the fancier car. I want this. I want this. And God doesn't promise that. God promises food, drink, and clothing, the bios, the necessities of life to sustain you to accomplish the mission that he has for you. And we're going to get into that in a little bit. But a child, man, these infants, these children, man, they, they're just trusting that their parents are going to take care of them. They're just, they don't have a value affixed to money. I see my kids get money and it's like they want to come and they want to give me money all the time. If, if I treat them out like once a month maybe, we might get something to eat to kind of give Jen a break from having to cook or the kids a break from cooking or myself a break from cooking. And so we'll go out and we'll you know get something cheap and we'll bring it back to the house. And it's kind of a treat for the kids. And they're always like, hey, Dad, can I pay for it? Hey, Dad, can I give you money towards this? Like just my kid the other day, he got a gift card from somebody. So he went to go get some ice cream with this gift card at Brookshire's. And he comes back and he bought me a drink. He's like, hey, dad, I know you're wanting this drink. I bought it for you. They, they don't care about money. They just want to please their parents. And we could learn a lot from that. And so he goes on and, and I think it's fitting that this ruler who's used to getting what he wants, who's used to having probably luxury and all this stuff, this ruler comes to Jesus. And, and I want you to get this depiction because in other accounts, it says that he comes running up to Jesus and he cries out and he falls on his knees before him and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This guy is begging and crying out in front of everybody, falling on his knees, running up to Jesus. You don't get that picture from Luke, but that's why it's important to compare these stories and the accounts of the same parable, or the same stories in other gospel accounts. He comes up to him in desperation. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except the Father. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, so all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Now I want you to understand something. This guy kept all these rules since he was a youth and yet he was still missing something. 
he was still at the feet of Jesus saying, I'm missing something in my life. I've kept all these things. And Jesus knows those things are not going to produce the life of God in you. Only I can. He says, those, those, and, and listen to me very carefully on this one. Because in no way am I saying that these things are wrong. But he says, those are my father's commands. I have something a little bit different. And you're like, well, hold up a second. That sounds like heresy. Let me say it from Jesus' own mouth. Okay? Because in John 15, listen to what he says. As the Father has loved me, in verse 9, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Do you see the distinction? I'm not saying that they're bad. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that there's, that there's not even a carryover. Okay? And this could go into a whole other topic. And that's sometimes the difficulties for me teaching through the gospel accounts is because there are so many bunny trails that I want to take to fully expound on things. But at some point, I just have to let it up to you to study the Word of God for yourself. But let me just tell you, this guy was keeping these things from his youth. And yet he still was missing life. He still was desperate for Jesus to give him something that he knew he didn't have. So even though he kept all these things, even though he did all them from his youth, he was still missing something in his life. Because simply keeping the commands of Torah will not produce the life of Christ in you. So what will? What produces the life of Christ in you to where you no longer are running on your knees in desperation asking God to give you life? You run in desperation and thankfulness to go and rejoice that He gave you life. How do you get that? How do you transfer from one of need to the other of receiving? And Jesus says it. Sell all that you have. And distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Is Jesus saying that in order to attain salvation, everybody needs to go and sell everything that we have? I don't believe that's exactly what Jesus is stating. Though we see elements of that in the Acts 2 and Acts 4 church, we see Jesus command that in Luke chapter 12. But here's the premise of it all. Here's the blueprint, the building block of attaining the life of Christ. You see, going out and selling those things are a manifestation of what the root really is. And you might have already guessed it. It's been a theme throughout, as we've already talked about it, and it'll continue to be one. Humility. Humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God so that you might receive grace. Humility is the building block. And if, and, and, and catch this, if you are humble, if you really do understand how undeserving you are, of salvation, of Christ being sent for you and dying as he did on that cross and resurrecting all in our behalf so that we can have access to the power of God and the throne of God and the presence of God. When you realize that, you do want to give everything to the glory of God. You don't want to hoard. You don't want to store up treasures for yourself in this life because you know that your treasure is in heaven and that's where your heart is. As Luke 12, 34 says, 
Even James talks about it. In James 2.5 it says, Has God not chosen those who are poor in this world to be rich in faith? If you truly have humility and you count others more significant than yourself as Christ did, who though he was rich in heaven, he made himself poor on purpose so that he could make others rich in spirit. Guys, humility is the thread that's woven through the tapestry of salvation, through grace, through everything of the blessings of God transferred to our life. Humility is the building block for it. Without it, you get nothing. He said, we always tell him, this guy is, I want you to have humility. Complete, perfect humility where you count others more significant than yourself. So you're not worried about building your kingdom here. You're worried about building God's kingdom through others and in others. That's hard for us Americans. People who like to spend a lot on themselves. We got some very generous people, but most times people give generously from their overflow and abundance, not from their poverty. And what did Jesus teach about the woman who gave her last two copper coins, all she had to live on, as opposed to those who gave abundantly, but out of their abundance? What did he say? He said, the one who gave from her poverty gave more than any of the others who gave abundantly. So I think it's great that there's people out there who give, but let me just say, even if you're giving from your abundance and you give millions, if you're still living on millions, you're not following the image of Christ. It's really that simple. He chose to be poor, to live simply. It wasn't something that he just simply fell into. It was something he chose. And the early church in Acts 2 and 4 was something they chose to. They chose to live simply so that others may simply live. They used the resources that were given to them. I talked about this in Luke chapter 16 in the podcast. They used the resources that was given to them at their disposal For the glory of God and the benefit of others. The betterment of others rather than themselves. And so he goes on in 23. He says, but when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. And Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now understand this. Jesus is not going to refute what he just said. He's going to uphold it. And a lot of people try to use the following verses to state that Jesus wasn't actually meaning what he said there. He's actually given us an escape clause to say, oh no, but it is possible that you can have wealth. You can have wealth, it's totally fine. Jesus wants us to have wealth. That's not what he does. What he says here is how difficult it is for those who have wealth in this life. This is the difference between the physical and the spiritual. How difficult it will be for those who are investing in the physical to actually receive blessing in the spiritual. If you're living your best life now, if you're living it up, and you're getting everything that your heart desires, everything that you want, let me just tell you, you will not reap the spiritual blessings of heaven. I guarantee you. So Jesus says this. He says, It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? Now, in other accounts, I believe it's in Matthew... Of the same one, I believe it's Peter who responds and says that the, the apostles, that they were astonished that he said this. 
And then he goes on further and, and explains it and expounds upon it and says they were exceedingly astonished. And Peter says, then who can be saved? Why would he say that? Let me just tell you why. All throughout their childhood and upbringing, these apostles, these Jews, would have heard of men like Abraham. They would have heard like men of Isaac, and Jacob, Noah, David and Solomon. They would have heard of men of renown. These men of old who had um, lived the life of God. Men after God's own heart. You know, and one thing they all had in common? Extremely wealthy. And so here's Jesus, the one who they're testifying to saying he's the son of God. And he says, people who have wealth, guys, it's going to be really difficult for them to get into heaven. And so immediately, I'm sure that these men are thinking Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Solomon, Noah. You know, the list goes on and on and on. And they're thinking, okay, wait a second. You, are, were they not saved? Did they not make it to heaven? Uh, they had tremendous wealth. And, I, and, and God, you, you said you were going to bless them if they obeyed you. And he did. Remember how I said that the cross shifted everything on its head? It changed the dynamic. One of those things that changed was the dynamic of physical and spiritual. You see, when we obey God, now in this new covenant, it's not physical riches he promises. That's a, a blending of the two covenants. One of a physical nature and the other one of a spiritual nature. You can't combine the two. Or as Jesus says, you'll ruin both. New covenant with new commands and new blessings. This is the spiritual blessings of heaven that we get when we obey God now. We're not promised physical riches. In fact, it's quite the opposite. If you look at the life of Christ, the life of his early church, the life of the apostles, you don't have to study too far to know that they did not have physical wealth and luxury that they lived in. Anyone who says otherwise does not know the word of God very well. When you blend the old with the new, you will come away with some erroneous doctrines that will lead you astray. Here's the reality. Jesus says how hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of heaven. He says it is not impossible, but it is improbable. Can you grind up a camel, cut it up into small little pieces and shove it through the eye of a needle as what they would have had back then, which was quite a bit bigger than what we have today? Yeah, it would have taken a lot of time, a lot of effort. There would have been a lot of things that would have had to happen and work right for it to go on. You had to have the right tools, all that stuff. And I'm aware that some people say that there was a gate in which camels would have to take off. I, I don't really buy into a whole lot of that. I think that that's just, honestly, hogwash and invention of men. However, I am aware that some people say that there was a gate where you had to take off the luggage off of a camel because it couldn't squeeze through. Okay, great. The reality is you still had to take it off. Nothing changes. You still had to take it off to get in. It still requires humility and brokenness to count others more. It still requires you to be a person who's changed missions from living your life for yourself and living it then for the glory of God. Either way. But the point is, the disciples looked at him and said, then who can be saved? And Jesus says, with man... Is, well, I'm sorry. What is impossible with man is possible with God. 
He's not refuting what he just said. He's just simply stating, Peter, it's not going to be probable. But there is a possibility that somebody who has that wealth would choose to turn from that wealth and choose to start investing in the kingdom of God for the glory of God. It's happened. It doesn't happen often. But I can tell you of a guy named Peter Waldo. He was a guy that started pretty much the Protestant Reformation from the Catholic Church in the late 1100s. He was a guy that found Christ and he began to actually give away all of his wealth. He stood on street corners and he would give to people who were in need. He just started giving it away. Because he was like, I don't need it. I don't want it. I have the greatest treasure that I really know of and I don't want this stuff anymore. You got guys like C.T. Studd who inherited $4 million dollars. Whenever his dad passed away when he was 25 years old, he inherited $4 million. He gave $3.5 million away and he wanted to keep roughly about 400000 for him and his new wife so they could start their life together. And he goes to his wife and he says, hey, I gave all this away and I kept this much. He says, why'd you keep it? <laughs> why'd you keep it? Let's just start clean. Clean slate. He's like, okay. Gave away $4 million to to Hudson Taylor's ministry and George Mueller's ministry and D.L. Moody's ministry. He gave all this stuff away because he's like, my treasure is in heaven. I don't need it. Man, how many Americans would justify keeping that and saying God blessed them with that for them to use it for themselves? Let me just tell you, that ain't the gospel and it ain't the life of Christ. And if you say you abide in him, you should walk the same way he did. Let me just ask you, if Jesus had $4 million, I guarantee you wouldn't have lived a life of luxury. I want you to think about that. You say you abide in him? Are you seeking to walk in the same way which he did? So he goes on, he says, Peter says, see, we have left our homes and followed you. King James would imply all. It says, we have left all and followed you. Matthew says the same thing. They left everything to follow Jesus. Do you think the cost changed? You think we don't have to leave everything, that everything has to be placed on the altar, and, and maybe we do have to leave it, maybe we necessarily don't. But do you think the cost has changed? I don't. I think the cost is the same. It's always been the same. If you don't sell everything that you possess, and I'm talking in a spiritual sense, let me just tell you, then it still has possession of you. That's a lot of what Jesus is getting at. If you do not sell and begin to come in a place in which Christ has a greater priority and treasure in your life than anything else, your family, your possessions, whatever it might be, if Christ is of not greater value than any of those things, then when you start this life of saying you belong to Christ, then those things will seek to take possession of you. He says, he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Let me just tell you, he's not talking about if you leave your wife, you're going to get many more wives. He's not talking about that if you abandon your parents that you're going to get many more fathers and mothers. Somebody's talking about, guys. Remember how I said the cross shifted everything from physical to spiritual? That's exactly what it is. When you relinquish the physical in your life, your wife, your children, your brothers and siblings, so so your siblings, when you relinquish them and you have to leave them for the sake of the kingdom of God. He's not saying everybody has to do this. 
What he's saying is that if it comes to it and you've got to do a CT stud did when his wife was trying to tell him, I'm not going with you to Africa. I know God's called you to go there. I know that we're supposed to live on a mission, but I kind of want to stay here. I'm not going with you. He had to go for the glory of God. A lot of people have issues with that, but 1 Corinthians 7.29, if you actually believe that the Bible is the authority over your life, then you have no way of disowning that. Because 1 Corinthians 7.29 says, The appointed time has grown short from now on those who have wives live as though they had none. God wants your undivided devotion and allegiance to Him and to His mission. That's what verse 35 says in chapter 7. So the point is, in all of this stuff, Peter and all these apostles, they followed the cost, they gave, they counted the cost, and it cost them having to make their wives and their children, their parents and their brothers and sisters or their earthly siblings of lesser priority than the glory of God. And, God, and Jesus says, if you do that, if you choose to relinquish the physical, then I will multiply the spiritual. Because you know what I do receive? It actually clarifies it in Matthew where it says, um, leaving fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, you know, wives, children, all that stuff. And then he goes on and he actually leaves off fathers and wives in the list. Why would he do that? Why would he say that if you abandon your father or fathers and wives, that you actually inherit everything except for those two things? He says, um, let me see if I can find it in... I think it's in chapter 18. Yeah, the chapter 19, sorry. He says in 28, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you have followed Me, will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands for My name's sake, and King James includes wives, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last... And the last first. That was actually not the one. So maybe it's Mark and I don't have time to find it. But um, there is an account, and, and maybe it is in Mark, where he says, leaving wives, hus- um, wives, fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, children. And what you receive is going, to be at, is going to be inclusive of all those things except for fathers and wives. And here's what I'm getting at. You receive a spiritual family. If you left a physical house, now all of a sudden you come into the faith and you have houses that belong to people in the church. They, they belong to you because you have all things in common. And you gain a father. You don't gain fathers. You have one father. You don't gain multiple wives because you're married to the Lamb. The point is, guys, is that he's transferring from the physical to the spiritual. And if you're willing to let go of the physical for the glory of God, if it comes to that... To relinquish claim on that, the prioritization of it in your life for the glory of God, he says, then you will receive blessing, spiritual blessings as a result. I don't know how else to explain it, but that's the reality. And he says, and if you're willing to do that, as Luke 14, 26-27 talks on, and even going into 33, anyone who does not renounce all that they have cannot be my disciple. If you're willing to do that, he says, then you also receive in the age to come eternal life. It's humility. It's counting Christ of more significance than yourself or anything else in this life. That's the basis, bottom line of it. So let me read this last part. Taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man. Notice it says everything that was written. 
Thus means that the law, the prophets, and the Psalms all were written foreshadowing the coming of Christ and what he was going to have to suffer and go through in order to bring about the redemption of mankind. It says, will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This same was hidden from them. And they did not grasp what was said. Because their eyes had not yet been awakened to see things through the spiritual. And let me just tell you, if you're having a hard time grasping some of this stuff, I know I'm not the most, um, I'm not the greatest teacher. I don't make stories come to life in ways that other people can. But what I am going to tell you is that I am telling you the truth. And while I might not be able to convey the message um, in the most clearest sense, because sometimes my thoughts and my mind are jumbled as to what direction I'm going to go, what bunny trail am I going to fall, and how, how far down that bunny trail am I going to take it, what I will say is if you don't have eyes to see, if, the, if you aren't looking at things and hearing what I'm saying or reading what the Word of God is saying with a spiritual lens, you will miss it. It will be kept from you. Because the things of God are spiritually discerned, as 1 Corinthians 2 says. So they didn't get it. They didn't understand it. He goes on in verse 35, as he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. In short, here's another miracle in which faith was the... <clears throat> the primary role in seeing the hand of God move upon an individual. But I want you to also see something, that when everybody told this man to be quiet, when everybody was telling this man, stop crying out, he cried out all the more. You see, faith presses through the obstacles of life. Whether that's in prayer, whether that's in obedience, whether that is to receive a promise of God, Faith presses through the obstacles of life. And we need to have a strong faith. And let me just tell you, your faith can weaken and it can strengthen based off of the works that you supplement to it. Faith is what preserves us. Faith, faith is what keeps us, according to 2 Peter 1, 3-5. But the works that you put to that faith, obedience... To the word of God, to the call of God, to the will of God, that keeps your faith strong. It matures your faith. And if you're not, your faith will weaken. Even if it is genuine, it will weaken. And you will not see the hand of God moving in your life in ways that you could. And so sometimes you got to sift through the crowd until Jesus is revealed. It goes into 1 Peter 1.13 that I read earlier. These people were telling him to be quiet, but he all the more pressed into Christ. And sometimes we got to do the same exact thing, if not every time. And so how do you respond to discouragement and to the voices that are trying to get you to pull back and to stop from what you know the Word of God is saying in your life, of what it's telling you to do? 
Do you allow that discouragement to get you to, to be quiet? Or do you cry out all the more? And you press through that and let your faith bring about the work of God in your life. Y'all be blessed.